So hi, everybody. Hi, world. This is Dr. Othre with another episode of Plastic Surgery Unplugged. Thank you so much for joining us today. We've got a super special guest here today. Today, we've got Dr. Alan Goodwin. Um, he has written a book about something very near and dear to my heart. So most of you guys who are following us are probably some ex-patients, and you guys have received um, post-op instructions, pre-op instructions, and I go ahead and I've included a list of all the psychological and psychiatric stuff that can happen before and after surgery. And so when Dr. Goodwin contacted me and told me about the book that he has written, my ears perked up. Like, I, I am so excited. I've been waiting to do this um, interview with you. So take it away, Alan. Go for it. Yeah, thanks, Rico. It's really great to talk with you, too. This is something that's an important subject to me because of the clients that I've worked with. And the book is behind me. It's, you know, saving face without losing your mind bringing mindfulness to your cosmetic procedure. And it's all about really the role that mindfulness and meditation plays in Western psychotherapy and goal-directed psychotherapy, which now we think of as cognitive behavioral therapy. That's pretty much always what, what it is, some form of cognitive behavioral therapy. And I might just start by just being clear that this is what I use with clients all the time in, in the initial session, just to describe what any therapy really is doing. It's addressing the connection between um, our, the way that we think and the way that we feel and the way that we behave, that, that those three are causally, not just in a correlational sense, but are causally connected to each other all the time. So cognitive behavioral therapy um, addresses this piece, the thoughts, which originally was cognitive therapy, and our behaviors, how those play a role in how we feel and think and behave. And it is a really pretty simple model. It should be a little more complicated it should really be this, because the way we feel physically also plays a role. This this isn't as elegant a model, but the fact is, you know, if you just take an example, if you have butterflies in your stomach, you may start feeling nervous because you feel the butterflies in your stomach. You know, if you feel nervous, you may notice then that you have butterflies in your stomach, and both of those can affect the way that you're thinking and and how you behave. So they're all not just interrelated, but causing each other. The good news is in effective psychotherapy, um, the thinking part is really most of the time just about a, a minor tweak, it's just getting accurate. It's not that we wanna see bad things as good things. We just wanna see bad things as tolerable. And a lot of the time in cosmetic procedures at different stages in the process, people are doing what we call catastrophizing, um, exaggerating some of the problems that they'll confront or they're recognizing that they really have very excessively strong reactions that they need to get a handle on. Interesting. So let's kind of break this down. So, okay, I'm going to give you kind of my way of looking at things. And I think, so just for background, I was an engineer in my prior life before I became a surgeon. So most of how I think about things has some sort of a systemic, whether it's based on a time frame, whether it's based on events. So I can kind of objectify it. So the way I think about this, Alan, is before surgery, like consultation phase, before surgery, surgery, after surgery, long-term after surgery. So that's kind of my, and this is what I have noticed. 
Mind you, I'm not a mental health specialist by any by any stretch. I don't claim to be. So I'm really anxious to kind of for you to take what I say and then plot all of your your diagrams, because I think this makes a lot of sense. So when a patient comes to see me, whatever it is, Jane Doe comes and sees me. And first of all, there's a lot of nervousness in the room. I know that straight off the fact. And so when I sense somebody that has closed body posture, they're nervous, they're this, they're that. And I go, okay, let, let's take a second. Let's take a deep breath. Let's bring it down to DEFCON 1. I know you're nervous. And I want you to see my hands. I'm not cutting on you today. These are my standard things that I say to people. Okay. So this is a happy time right now. I know it's very difficult that you are trying to, you've never met me. I'm the strange man in a room and you're going to tell me some of the things that are um, bugging you or insecure about. And that's a hard thing to do to open up to somebody. Okay. And normally when I just drop the honesty and drop it like that, 99% of people, they just take that deep breath and then we start having a conversation. So then my next thing is, so you have a magic wand, you can do whatever it is that you want. What would you do? And I'm taking notes then we kind of come to a plan. Now, those patients from that point, some of those patients will say, okay, I like your plan and I want to go forward with surgery. Now we have this thing called a pre-op appointment. And in that pre-op appointment, we talk about the nuts and bolts of stuff like, hey, we got to sign permission slips, blah, blah, blah. And this is where I give them their talk about um, the psychology and some of the factors that affect their success. So I go, listen, right now, you're kind of a little scared, a little anxious, but you're a lot excited. That's kind of the thing. And as we get close to the day of surgery, what's going to happen is that those the proportions of those are going to change. Okay. Excitement comes down. Scaredness goes up. Okay. Which is normal. I had surgery. I'm a surgeon. I go to the OR and every day. But yet at the same time, when I'm I'm having surgery on myself, it's scary. Okay. It's, it's a black box. So you're going to come out of surgery and there is this euphoric high. I mean, you are on cloud nine. You get to see there's bandages and stuff, but you get to see a little bit of the result. So you are on cloud 10. Now, one of the problems that happens is, is that you're going to come back and see me a few days later where I start taking bandages off. Okay. And you've built this point in your head so high that you are expecting perfection and you're still swollen. So then what happens is they kind of go into the space where there's a bit of depression and that depression kind of goes down, 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 and then they slowly build themselves back up to normal. So this is what I normally see. And I explain this to patients. So I want, so you being the mental health professional and putting all of these things, um, is that right? Is that wrong? Am I doing something right? Am I doing something wrong? Are there things that can help them, like some of the meditation techniques to help them through these ups and downs? So I'm going to leave it up to you. And I'm just I'm all years. Well, I mean, you're doing a lot right. It, it, it's, you know, it's a difficult process for everybody. And, you, and it sounds like you're doing a really great job helping them to try to approach it in a healthy way. I, you know, the thing that I think that plastic surgeons need to really appreciate is how much they don't have control over and 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 also what the patients really need, could benefit from in therapy is 
to recognize what they're bringing to the table that causes those ups and downs. And yeah, to try and predict them ahead of time to recognize that. And that's another thing that you can do in the therapy because, you know, some people, some people have the expectation that things are going to work out. And some people have the expectation that things are not going to work out. And, and when, you know, and when you, and based on their experiences in life and when you add the physical, you know, that, that second model that I showed you, it's so important that it's a simple idea. But even after becoming a psychologist, this really became more clear to me. When you've got a pain condition, a physical pain condition, and that can mean anything physical, it can mean itching, any any discomfort, but especially pain. When you've got that on top of emotions, it's it's more difficult to deal with the emotional piece. So, can you bring that schematic up one more time, please? Yeah, sure. It's just the idea that the physical states and our thinking and our feeling and our behaviors are all going to be interacting. And, and so when you add the physical pain, uh, those fight flight uh, uh, alarms are much more likely to be going off when someone's feeling stress. Right. And it's much more difficult to make, to be logical, to make smart um, decisions at that point. And so thinking of that ahead of time um, can really help. The reason I was so drawn to Eastern ideas like meditation it, it practices like meditation and, and ideas like mindfulness is because, you know, they talk, um, the, the Buddhists talk about um, creating space in your mind and a way to um, to think of it for in our terms, Western psychotherapy terms, is really space between stimuli and our responses to them. You know, we can become so reactive. Something happens and we just react instead of responding, which means, you know, being a little more mindful about it and recognizing that I have choices. A lot of people are never stopping. They're never just slowing themselves down and recognizing that there's this fight flight thing going on all the time. They're always defended. They're always posturing. And so one of the things that we do in therapy is, you know, holding, hold a mirror up to someone in a compassionate way and help them really get a sense of what's going on. I watched one of your videos just yesterday just to prepare I was watching the video of a, a woman who you operated on, who's a hairstylist, and mm. it, she was talking about the psycho. You were talking about the psychological issues with her. That's a healthy, very psychologically healthy woman, right? You know, very trusting, very willing, very committed, um, very committed to taking care of herself, to nurturing herself. That's why she was following your orders, and um, so. You know, the pre-op and, and post-op um, instructions that you give, it's so important. But the, the problem is some people are really not connected with you. They're really not oriented toward trusting other people. And so that's one of the things that, that I say to people when I talk with them. You, you've got to tell your physician everything about yourself physically so that he or she knows, you know, any of the risk factors. Some people don't want to tell a physician everything they've had done because they feel like the physician will talk them out of it, you know, but maybe they should be talked out of some procedures. Yeah, I, I hear that. So I'll, I'm going to give you a couple of examples, which I think you bring some, I, I was taking notes um, while you were talking. So I, I remember there's a few things that I think are very critical. So first of all, so when we're talking about plastic surgery, there've been tons of studies done on uh, patients 
having plastic surgery or, or contemplating plastic surgery. And one of the things that I find interesting is there is a larger um, category, there's a larger prevalence of patients having certain DSM diagnoses. For example, we know that there are larger numbers of patients with body dysmorphic disorder who undergo cosmetic surgery procedures. This is, we've had papers prove this. Now, um, as a plastic surgeon, you will see some of these patients in your office and they're all on, they're, they're all on a spectrum. Like I, I do have patients that, for example, will say, hey, listen, you know, I've been doing this and I did this and I did this and you're going, oh my God. But when they talk and there you can see where they're going, they have a very logical thought process. And what they're asking for, my job is to go, is this realistic, what they're asking for? Can I do it safely? Is it something that what they're doing is either not realistic or unsafe in this person, or is not going to look good? That's the basic shmeel at that point, okay? And I liked what you said, where sometimes people don't take the time. And because this is sometimes I, every once in a while, I get into this conversation with that patient at that point, And I say, I think we need to just take a break from each other. And we need to come back here, have another consultation about two weeks. Because, <clears throat> and I've recently, I've only started doing this recently. Earlier, I used to really try and have them come and see see it from my eyes. But there's a point in this conversation where they're not listening to me. I'm frustrated because they're not listening to me. And we're just doing this and we're not moving forward at all. So and I think that that idea of yours of this making space for every aspect is, is a good thing. Um, but even intraoperatively, there are times where I need three or four minutes to just step away, kind of just bring myself back to my Zen and then come back. And I think that's a very important thing. And I, I like that idea that you just brought into it. And I think this is going to be very useful for patients for, especially I think in their post-op, that's where I think that you're going to run into a lot of, as you said, when there are physical factors like pain, you're not thinking clearly, everything is so reactive where you can just go, I need you to take a few seconds back. Let's bring this down and let's restart. Yeah, I, ju I just recently talked with a physician who um, went back in with a patient after a liposuction procedure because she was reacting within a day or two to um, whether he did enough. And you know um, what the body can be doing at that point. I mean, it, that's a, it's a real problem to go right back in a couple of days later um, because we, we don't know what the result of that lipo procedure is going to be at that point. The, you know, the thing about, you, you said a minute ago, um, uh, you don't think it's going to look good sometimes. And the thing that is complicated about the whole body dysmorphic issue is, yeah, in a sense, someone's wanting to look better. But the problem is people are also wanting to look different. The, the, you know, what body dysmorphic disorder really is about is that Groucho Marx line. I don't want to be a member of a club that will admit me. Mm -hmm. You know, so, you know, you, know, you can put a, a, a great nose on that face. But what's, once it's on that face, that face that they've been rejecting their whole life, it it's becomes different. It's attached to them. 
thing about body dysmorphic disorder, th there may be some reality basis to it that they have this or that flaw that you see too. But the the problem with body dysmorphic disorder is they also have the problem that whatever is attached to me is something that I reject. I like that. I re the way you put that made. I mean, that's I, I like that analogy. That's a, that's a very good point. And and that's insidious. I mean, that that's what you work on in, in really good therapy. You can talk to a really successful person who will, will who's in their 80s, and I've done it in their 90s even, who will word for word tell you what their abusive parent said to them, you know, decades and decades ago that they still can't let go of. So the, so the question is, you know, why would somebody, for instance, with body dysmorphic disorder, why would they be thinking negatively about anything that's attached to them? It becomes, you know, a little bit of it is about the way it looks to you and me. But there's a whole other thing that is a lot more powerful that surgeries aren't going to change. So you attach a new nose and then the, you know, the, the chin needs to change and then the cheekbone needs to change. And, you know, that's what we deal with in therapy. At what point, you know, is this not about the physical, you know, even though there's a physical component. So I'm going to ask you some questions and you can... You have the right, Alan, to say, sorry, I prefer not to answer that. Fair? Sure. All right. Have you had any cosmetic surgery done? Yeah. Well, in the book, I say I, I had a, a nose job, really, but it wasn't a nose job. It was it was something because I had, a you know, I, I didn't breathe well out of my okay. nose. OK, but but I but I wouldn't I wasn't raised, you know, with the idea that a boy you know, cares what his nose looks like. But as part of the procedure, I, 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 I did want that taken care of. So go into what made you first explain your feelings about that process, your personal, how that process existed for you. And whether you feel like you were kind of the stereotypical patient now, like almost looking from the outside in, because Okay, I will I'll share my story with you, okay? I had a I had a hair transplant done, okay? And one of the cool things about it was it really made me it made me a better doctor. It made me understand what my patients really go through, okay? From the standpoint there is this the nervousness of what it is going to look like this point where you're uncomfortable, then there's this point of, should I do this? Should I not? Is it really something that I want? I mean, there's, there's all these questions and then you go get it done. And then there's this almost, you feel like there's like 40 eyes staring at you all the time, you know, as you're going through this process of healing. And I kind of went through this tough it out phase where I was like, listen, I tell my patients, that they should just make peace with everything, go out, do their thing and, you know, get back to life. It's going to make them feel better. So I came back to work like little red dots and swelling. And I mean, I could stick my thumb in my forehead here and you could see the impression of my thumb in my forehead. And I said, I'm going to I'm going to do it because I don't feel bad and I'm going to come back to work. So it really that whole process, really, I think it made me understand what patients go through what what are their feelings what are their fears and um so if you could go through that for your thing and how 
you may have used some of these techniques in order to ameliorate some of those symptoms. Well, yeah, I mean, the cognitive behavioral techniques, I think, are just just really effective. We've been using them long before cognitive behavioral came, uh, therapy came along. I mean, it's just being reasonable with yourself, being rational, um, um, keeping things in perspective. But, you know, it's complicated because, I mean, I, mean, I, I think as a, as a psychologist, um, I self-disclose all the time to clients because what this is about, what, what the work is about in therapy is working through the difficulty, the struggle of being human, of getting through life, of aging, of changing, of things about you that you're still working on, that you're always going to be working on, you know? So humanizing the whole thing. That's why I, I'm drawn to the, the Buddhist ideas. It's not just in Buddhism, but I've been drawn to the way they articulate ideas of like compassion and how you how you bring that into your life. I've, I've thought about having a sword in my office in a frame, but it would be a sword that doesn't have a handle. Because a long time ago in doing this work, I thought about the idea that, you know, some people walk around with these rules. They're just waiting to catch people violating the rules. Like it's not okay to screw up. And they have this sort of metaphorical sword that they, they slice people with, you know, they criticize them with because they screwed up. But it's a sword that doesn't have a handle. Because if you adopt that way of thinking that it isn't okay to screw up, you, you do tend to have a sense of integrity about it. You're mm -hmm. going to beat yourself up when you screw up. So the more you use that sword, the more you're cutting yourself. So you ask about my experience. Yeah, of course, I have my own interest in looking a certain way and in, in, in presenting myself in a way that people react, will react to me in a certain way because that's part of our reality. And um, so I try to be open about that with clients. It doesn't mean that I would share, you know, everything, all of my, you know, it's not, it's not about me. It's not about, um, I don't fill the room, but, but letting them know that I have my own insecurities to work through and whatever. Sure. I mean, it's, it's part of life, but that struggle, you know, so if, if we don't walk around with that sword, what's the alternative? The alternative is compassion. The alternative is recognizing that when somebody wrongs me, they that wrong is coming out of their struggle, and I struggle too. And and so I try to understand that it's not entirely personal. Yeah, they directed it at me, but they were also struggling. And so what we demand of ourselves is a reflection of what we're demanding of other people, and that can really be helpful in, in deciding what you want to change about yourself, what is just unacceptable about yourself. You know, and so the meditative practices are about just slowing everything down and being present. Really, mindfulness meditation is a really difficult practice. At its core, it's just about being present with yourself. And the terminology I use with clients is that, you know, any compulsive behavior, whether it's, you know, um, addiction to a substance or to sex or to gambling or to worrying or to analyzing. I mean, in all sorts of ways, we trip, we leave, we go to a place cognitively, which is full of something that we're thinking about or, or, or doing. And when we're doing that, really, there's a, there's a rejection of what's going on right here. So mindfulness meditation at its core is about staying, about staying present and trying to give room, leave space for really 
understanding what your priorities are and where they're coming from. So you've one of the things that I've noticed in this little talk you've mentioned a lot about is some of the Buddhist principles and how you're incorporating some of that those philosophies. So I wish I could have a little um, like a portable camera. I'd walk you around the office. So uh, I'm originally Indian. I'm I'm Hindu, and so a lot of the principles are very similar. So one of the things we ended up doing a few maybe about a year ago. Okay is in our front office, we have the little, um, the sand pit with the rake. You know what I'm talking about, yeah. the little thing. Okay. And it came up, I purchased it after I went to go see, there was some Tibetan monks that had come to Houston and they had this elaborate sand painting ceremony. And I don't, it was like multiple days and um, they wouldn't talk. They had taken a vow of silence so that they could really process their thoughts. They didn't want to be distracted, all this stuff. And they're, they're doing this very intricate sand painting. And I mean, it was done on this, if I can give you a mental picture, imagine a room that's maybe 20 feet by 20 feet. This, this, this diagram that they're doing is probably 10 feet in diameter, probably has 15 or 20 different colors very intricate and there's all these monks that are working on it on their knees just doing it painstakingly for days and days and then at the end of it okay they just swipe it okay uh -huh. and it's supposed to teach you this idea that everything is temporary yeah okay nothing is fixed and don't get fixated on anything like have energy, have, do all this thing. And I was talking to one of the monks and it really, it impacted me. I mean, like it really changed the way that I think. And so from that day, I, I wanted to buy this little sand pit. And so I bought, I put it in the office. I put it in the office and it's really interesting. So I love just sitting back here and I can see the people as they come in, new patients and everybody, you know, they're all wound up and everything like that. They fill out their papers and all that. About 80% of them will pick up the little rake. Okay. It's so addictive and start raking the sand. Okay. And those 80% that rake the sand, when they come into the office, there's this, I, I can't explain. There's this genocide. They're about, they're a little on the lower plane and it's a lot easier to converse than the people that are just sitting there with their hands, you know, like this, they fill their paperwork out. And it's really interesting to watch them as they're kind of, you know, raking the sand. It, it, it's really a very interesting phenomenon. I, I believe it. Sometimes with clients, I'm, I'm, my office is in L.A. Sometimes with clients, when they'll come into the office, um, I'll offer them the opportunity to do an arrival meditation, like especially if they were, you know, driving through traffic. Right. And in, in two or three minutes, we just sit and breathe together and honor that they're present, that they're here. So it's a, it's a, you could think of it also as a, a transition meditation. Sometimes mm -hmm. I talk to clients about how you can do that in your office right. after a meeting or something, um, just to transition between from one event to another in, in your mind also to let go of whatever just happened and to be present. So, you know, there's so many different scenarios. So what made Alan sit down and go, you know what? 
I see this cosmetic surgery. I see something where I think I can make a difference. I'm going to write this book. What What was the eureka moment for you? You know, it's that's a good question. I guess I should have an answer to it. I I I work with a number of people, and they're just aren't great resources out there that way that are directed at that. I mean, I found that the resources that are out there are written by plastic surgeons or patients, and they're great resources in terms of, you know, um, nuts and bolts knowledge about what's available, how, how you can change. And, and people do mention, you know, don't go overboard and, you know, take care of yourself emotionally. But it just is more complicated than that, especially because recognizing how people can be self-sabotaging is really complicated, you know. And um, so sometimes plastic surgeons will talk about um, this person just could not be satisfied. I mean, I did really good work on this or that, and they just could not be satisfied. And they're not recognizing that, you know, the problem is some people really can't be the person doesn't recognize they're not consciously um wanting to sabotage everything but they are and so um helping people to get uh sensitive to how that can happen uh, in really high functioning people how people can be how we can really not be taking good care of ourselves sometimes even when we think we are um, it's complicated i you know i was a lawyer before i became a psychologist and um, a lot of clients are surprised at that. I think probably most of my clients are surprised at that. But um, I'm pretty analytical and I'm pretty respectful of what's so complicated about this. You know, I came to this work getting, you know, good feedback from my supervisors when I started. And I've been doing it over 25 years now. And every day I've been, I, you know, I came to this pretty with pretty good raw skills. And every day, I am questioning some of the things that I've done. Could that have been more effective? What really is going on for that person? This stuff is complicated. And so that's what led me to, to write the book, to try and just shine a light on that, respecting the complications. So I think you bring up a very, a, an excellent point where you, what you just said, and I'm going to kind of throw some, I don't know what the word is, and maybe I'm throwing some darts here. So, I think there is, in all of our professional spaces, there is a growth space, okay? And I believe, this is my belief, that we, we're we on this journey and we, we continually grow. So, for example, for, as a surgeon, I continually look at my results and I want to be better, okay? It's something 20 years from now, I want to be even better. 30 years from now, I want to be even better. It, it is a self-analysis. Um, it is a self-growth. It is so. There's all of this going on. Just just as as you've said in your um, in your personal space. Now coming backward, one of the things that's very very difficult. So when you have a patient that says, "Hey, listen, I'm a little, I'm not happy or something," that is a very difficult thing because part of this is you want to be empathetic yet at the same time there is a certain amount of ego i have given all of this to this patient how dare they be non-satisfied and trying to separate these things sometimes it takes 
it, it's a lot to be able to sit down and go, I need a moment because I need to like compartmentalize, take this side off the table. Yeah, I mean, it's that's an important part of the work in therapy as a psychologist. You know, there are plenty of people who become mental health professionals who have codependency tendencies where we need to feel better about ourselves because we're helping people. Right. And that's a problem because your client needs to have the space to react negatively to you, to practice that, to explore what that's about. You know, so so in your situation, I mean, you're not doing therapy with them. So there's only so much you can do. But I, what I would say is what you can do, especially for yourself, and this can inform how you interact with them, is recognize that you're just a small part of what they're reacting to. You know, they... They are reacting to whatever's getting activated in them. You know, one, one of the things that I talk about with clients is, you know, we know the concept of neuroplasticity. You probably are familiar with it, but a lot of people have just heard the term, but they really don't know what that's about. It's the idea that, you know, we really can change the way that we think, the way that we react to the world, the way that we react to our successes and our failures. The problem is we're up against the child that we were and the way we learn to think at that time. And that's what I talk about with clients as the inner child. A lot of the time, the inner child is talked about in a kind of amorphous, like very sweet way. You know, this, you know, this vulnerable child in you that is needy. A better way to think of it is, no, you, you have ways of thinking that you developed at a time when you were much younger and much more simple. Even a smart five, six, seven-year-old is much simpler than an adult cognitively. And so um, sometimes what's happening is those old ways of thinking, those sort of two-dimensional ways of thinking are getting reactivated in a person that really can think in a more complex way. So that's one way to deal with, you know, you know, to, to help a person in therapy anyway, understand the urgency, the sense of urgency or this feeling of demand you know, that's another thing that we talk about. I try to identify linchpins. So one one thing that a that a, a person can think about is, you know, be aware. It's a red flag when you're demanding things. It's a red flag when you feel the need to have something. I need air. There aren't many things I need. You know, I want lots of things. It's good to want lots of things, but but lots of times we we treat wants as needs, and that's a very simple cognitive idea that's really valuable. Right. You mentioned children, and I, I'll tell you my experience. That diagram that you had put up there with the physical forces, the behavioral, I think children are far more able to draw that diagram in their head. And I'll, and I'll give you the thing. So if a child is above the age of five or six, roughly, what I've noticed is, let's say, you know, you bring your kid in saying, hey, he has a laceration, needs sutures or whatever. After the age of about five or six, the vast majority of children that I've encountered have the capacity to do this under local anesthesia, as long as you're honest with them. Like you don't tell them, hey, this is not going to hurt. You tell them, I'm going to numb you. And the numbing medicine hurts for about two seconds. And after that, you won't feel anything. And as long as you're honest, they they're, they can they can go for it. Okay. That's right. And I've yep. noticed this. So when you 
when you anesthetize an adult, they're going to clench their teeth. They're going to do all sorts of stuff. When you anesthetize a child, okay, and you're giving that little numbing medicine shot, and you say, listen, what I'm going to do is I'm going to shoot the shot, and I'm going to count to 10, and you can count to 10 as well, and as soon as we hit 10, I'm going to take the needle out, okay? So we're going to count to 10 together. So you go 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and if you know every one of these children will go... They'll just kind of drop their breathing. They'll just start breathing kind of much more slowly. Like they they don't clench and do all of this kind, the, the vast majority of them, which I find is, you know, kind of probably they're doing innately what you would want someone to do at a, at a point, kind of disconnecting. They're there, but going, I need this. These are the tools I have. And they're kind of bringing themselves back down to this base and they're able to tolerate it very well. Well, you're doing beautiful work with them when you do that stuff. And and it's just, um, it, it's a great example of, of what's different in adults and what's different in kids that have been mistreated. Even kids that haven't been, you know, something treated in a way that we would call abusive um, might have difficulty trusting something that you just described you do. But I would say that, that yeah, that is the thing to do. The problem is you'll have kids, you know, I was every action smiling as you were talking because I had allergies as a kid. And so when I was a kid, they gave you the 60 allergy shots, the right. test. Yeah. And then I would go weekly and I'd get um, like 30 shots in my thigh. And the first time, I out to this day, I see that office. I remember um, asking the nurse the first time it was a new shot. Um, could you just do one? And just so I know what it's like, just so I know really just what you said. That's I asked the nurse to do that. And she agreed to it. And then she didn't. She kept going. She didn't stop. And so you have some people who have, and I, I think I've worked through that, but the impact of that, but I can describe it to you still. And so that those experiences of the betrayals that cause people to not be so trusting. And then, then you take, you know, lots of experiences of, of hurts and um, yeah, people, adults are, are different. They're bringing a lot more baggage. Yeah. Well, this was an awesome talk. I learned a lot from you, Alan. And I think I'm going to take a lot of what I've learned here and kind of apply this. Um, I think a lot of patients have may have the tools to do a lot of this themselves, but there's a group of patients that they may be so wound up at certain points in this journey that they may need some intervention. And I think you've really given me a lot of additional tools that I can bring to the game as I, as I love to say, to bring them from DEFCON 5 down to DEFCON 1. Great. You might want to check out the, the last chapter of my book. That's where there are the, there's a series of meditations. And the intention was to have um, 28 meditations that roughly carry you through 14 days before and 14 days after. Before I had many more of the meditations, I finally decided on, we'll just go with two weeks and two weeks. Um, but... But it, what was great about the video that I watched yesterday was you were talking with that patient, that former patient, 
about this ebb and flow, the ups and downs leading up to the procedure and then right after the procedure. Um, and, and so I say in the book, these the, they're daily meditations. Um, so one day the meditation is focused on fear. Another day the meditation is focused on elation or success or gratitude. Um, the point is um, you don't have to go in the order of the meditations, but um, they do, if you do the meditations, they do give you an opportunity to sit with and honor what's going on and not just get into the reactive mode. Because that's like, that's what happened with that, that surgeon who I told you about, who went back in and did more lipo on somebody um, three days after the procedure, because the patient was freaking out. I, I don't think you did enough here or there. And so um, we have to have some practice if we're healthy, we have to have some practice for coping with, you know, the reactions you know, the unhealthy reactions. And I think some of the power of some of the lessons that I've learned from you today is not just for the patient. I mean, for me personally, I mean, I'm as, as you were talking, I'm writing little notes down for myself. I mean, because after all, as you very well said, we are human as well. I mean, we kind of, we practice an art and therefore we were put here and we're looking at the patient from this kind of up, down philosophy but once the lights go off and i get to my house i need to look at myself as well as a human and, and i'm i'm seeing that a lot of what you're putting out there is um is useful from that perspective as well yeah yeah i i <clears throat> i lean on the concept of struggle all the time one of the ways there aren't so many ways but one of the ways that i disagree with the buddhists is some buddhists will talk about how suffering is inevitable life is suffering I don't think that's as helpful as saying struggle is inevitable and, and that it's the people who don't accept the inevitability of struggle that suffer, that we don't have to suffer. We, we do have to struggle. Right. If we can accept the struggle, we cope with it better. Correct. Correct. I like that. I like that. So a couple of things. First of all, to all our viewership, if you could... Let them know where to get your book, all your details, your Instagram handle. I've been now following you on Instagram and I love your little videos that you put out there. It's kind of like one of my things in the morning as I'm reading my coffee. Let's see what Alan put out there today. You know, I mean, it's it's, it's a challenge for me to see and I, I enjoy it. So giving you some feedback. I love seeing your little videos. Awesome. I'm really glad. Yeah. On Instagram and on TikTok. Yeah, they're they're quick. They're brief. They're, they need to be people's attention spans are so brief. But that's what the book looks like it's on Amazon and uh, they can get the hardcover or the soft cover or um, the Kindle edition. There's going to be an audio um, audible edition. I don't know when that'll be, but uh, that's not available yet. Um, and I'm in L.A. and I'm on Instagram and TikTok. It's just uh, Dr. and then my name, Alan Goodwin. Um, and, uh, yeah, my office is in LA. I, I couldn't do psychotherapy with someone outside of California. Um, but I could, I could consult with them if it's in, in a coaching way. Great. So to all our viewing, uh, viewership out there, uh, Dr. Alan Goodwin, the book is excellent. I've read the book. It's, it's phenomenal. I highly recommend it at the end of this little podcast. Um, we will go ahead and at the it's going to be on our podcast channel. We're going to put it on our social media platforms 
as well as YouTube. I'll go ahead and put his Instagram handle on there um, and some of the details about him, as well as the title of the book. And I will go ahead and if you could do me a favor, um, Alan, just send me the link on Amazon. I'll go ahead and put that on there as well so they can click directly and it'll probably and it'll take them to the Amazon site. Um, would you like to say anything else before we wrap up? I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, just one thing. You might um, just mention that, you know, that the people who have read the book have, have reflected back what was an intention of mine, which is it really does talk a lot about therapy and about these practices and how we can use them for the broader concepts underlying these struggles. In other words, uncertainty is what you and I have been talking about that patients really struggle with, understandably. Self-esteem, changing, how we cope with those things, aging. You know, that really is what we do in therapy all the time. And one of the things I wanted to do with the book is just help people understand how you can make a difference if you can find a therapist that can really be helpful to you. So the book does focus on that a lot. And so some people who aren't even considering the procedure might benefit from reading through it. Um, I can second that motion. And I think whether or not you're considering um, cosmetic surgery, I mean, we're doing this from the perspective of cosmetic surgery, but I think there's, as, as I just put out there, there's a lot you can learn from this just by reading the book. I mean, I got even more talking to you right now. So, and I'm not undergoing a procedure, but it still helps me in my daily life and how I cope with stuff. So um, that kind of anything else you'd like to share, Alan? No, I really appreciate the opportunity. It's fun. Oh, it's, it's been right. a lot of fun. I truly appreciate your time. Um, I guess it's it's pretty early out your time's two hours earlier here. It's a nice late morning, but it's a little earlier for you. So thank you so much for joining us. This is another episode of Plastic Surgery Unplugged. I'm Dr. Raghu Athre. Stay tuned, subscribe to the channel, and we'll have more fun episodes coming along your way. All right. Thanks, Alan. Okay. Appreciate thanks it, Thanks so man. much, Raghu. It was really it nice was, It was a lot you. of fun. A lot thanks. of fun. Yeah, really All appreciate right. it. Thank you. Okay. Thank you.